The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. Your trusted source for news and analysis about Chicago White Sox prospects and player development, covering the Major League Baseball draft and international market, plus the action in Kannapolis, Winston-Salem, Birmingham, and Charlotte. This is the Future Sox Podcast with your hosts, Mike Rankin and James Fox. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Future Sox Podcast. It's so great to talk to you weekly. We drop episodes every Tuesday. It's been a fun year. We're going to continue to preview the offseason for you at SoxMachine.com and FutureSox.com. Today's guest on the Future Sox podcast is Herb Lawrence. You may have heard the name and the voice from 670 to the score AM in the city of Chicago. That's where really Herb Lawrence spread his wings a little bit in his personality, allowing everybody to understand where he's coming from. And we fell in love with his baseball takes, right? And he also helped establish some of the credibility over at 670 The Score and has established the standard of what it should look like over so many years. That's translated now to CHGO. Herb Lawrence is on Twitter at EchnerWall23. That's Lawrence spelled backwards with the number 23. You can catch him on the CHGO White Sox podcast working with Sean Anderson and Vinny Duber. It's really entertaining. My name's Mike Rankin and James Fox also alongside us. Herb, welcome to the Future Sox podcast yet again. It's so good to talk to you after a season that brought us so much joy. <laughs> Thank you for the introduction, Mike. And uh, hello, James. It's, yeah, this season. Ugh. I'm just so glad it's over so I can get a break from this team because I know many people have said this, but this is one of the teams that I have not liked watching actively because of how they play baseball. And I know that's like the symptom of a terrible organization. So you know, <laughs> what can we do? We chose poorly early, so we need to ride it out. So you wrote it out with CHGO this year, mm-hmm. a, a startup in the city of Chicago. And I know there's large, it's a larger company with other affiliates around the country, but this is the first year in which CHGO existed uh, around our parts. And they asked you and Sean Anderson and Vinnie Duber and others to really focus on the White Sox and be the voices of the Chicago White Sox for CHGO. Curious on where you stand with the product so far, how it's translated across a first full season and some of the things that we can look forward to and where we can listen to you. 
Well, I feel like we built an audience of people who wanted to watch or listen to something, just an alternative, not a thing to take over anything, just a, an additive to whatever was already here in Sox Twitter and Sox, uh, you know, listenership. So I felt like this season in particular was needed for me to talk about the games and get it out off my chest because it was so frustrating of a season. And I hope that people who tuned in to CHGO White Sox in the post game felt that way. They felt like at least they got some things off their chest in this very frustrating season with our product and they can do with many other products. I mean, you guys are part of the Sox machine people, uh, Sox on 35th also from 108. A lot of people, the Sox on tap people, a lot of people around the, the landscape that give that same um, relief that same uh, kind of re- therapy that's going on after a game that's needed for this 2022 White Sox. So I felt that we did a good job of telling exactly what we thought, what we, we what we saw. Vinny at the games on home games to tell us what the players thought and what his his opinions are there. And then I think in the future we're just going to be like in this off season we're going to be doing more reach out to people to come into the studio to do some uh, video shoots with us to just uh, have some fun with different opinions of White Sox Twitter, White Sox uh, blogosphere. And so that's just going to be this whole offseason. Vinny's actually going on a decent-sized trip, so we're going to need some people in the studio because people are going to get tired of Sean and I's thoughts in this <laughs> offseason, just telling that Rick Hahn sucks and all those things like that, and this organization should fire everybody. But, you know, we live in realistic times, so we'll we'll gear down to some actual entertaining uh, takes where it's maybe not all White Sox filtered or White Sox-based, we also talk a little bit more baseball in general, the Major League Baseball playoffs, which have been exciting so far. I really love the alternative perspective and the freedom that CHGO allows the White Sox podcast over there to do your thing. And a part of that was something that kind of brought itself about on Twitter when we watched Yasmani Grandal try to move around the base paths this year in Herb Lawrence for the world to see. Tripped, fell hurt himself trying to beat out Yasmani Grandal, hypothetically running down to first base. How you feeling, and how was that received by the masses? I got to give credit to Sean Anderson on that one. I was, you know, I talk a lot, and so I say a lot of stuff that, you know, I usually don't back up, but everybody is probably in their living room. It's like, I can literally run faster than Yasmani Grandal. I truly felt that way. Now, I saw Albert Pujols go the other day, and he was like a 5'4 to first. I was much faster in my attempts there, so I can say without any doubt that I can beat Albert Pujols at whatever age he's at right now, to first base. But Sean's like, hey, man, you say these things on our podcast. You got to put your money where your mouth is. So we did the video the next day, and I think we did three attempts. The first attempt, I was like a 5-2 slow. And Yasmani, I think I was chasing the 4-7 or 4-8 uh, to first base, 90 feet distance. So we were going from one uh, static sp- space where we uh, measured out to another space uh, that would have been to, for home the first uh replicated and then i did a second one and i felt a little twinge but i ran faster because i had lifted my legs up a little bit more and i was like okay all i need to do is lift my legs up just a skosh more and drive them a little bit more you know i haven't done workouts i haven't done sprinting ever really and so the third attempt sean was behind me the first two times he would just stay back by the uh by the starting line he was behind me this time and so I was picking up. I was going. I was on the pace to beat Yasmani Grandal's record. And then it just grabbed me. My hamstring just like, nope, sorry, gone. And that's why you see the fall. And I kind of 
luckily did like a body roll where I didn't get a lot of injury. Like I think on my right arm, I got some scratches. My right knuckle got a scratch. And then, of course, the hamstring, which pretty much uh, healed after two days of icing and uh, uh, elevating it. But I, Sean and um, Vinny and our producer, Steven's like, hey, we'll cut that out. I was like, no, no, no. This is true. True to form. Like I tried. I failed tremendously. And it's going to be good content for the people out there. I don't mind being embarrassed, especially when I talk way too much stuff. And so I've heard back from Jason Benetti sent me a text like, Herb, that was gold. Apparently, they watched that in the plane. And that's why Yasmani Grandal sent a like a knee brace through Vinny to us. So it said, hey, tell your friend I'm much faster on the road. And he handed it to Vinny and gave me a knee brace. And we have that in the studio right now as a like a token. So he was good spirited about it, good natured. And apparently everybody laughed at my expense, which is good. I'm I'm fine with people laughing at my expense, especially if I talk a lot of smack and I fall literally on my face. Yeah, it's content, right? It's fine. It was it was awesome, but I think like Yasmani Grandal knows he's slow. Like it's okay. Like I, I think he knows. But Herb, you know, one of the things that you and I have long agreed on is managers not really mattering all that much. Mm-hmm. You know, just after we saw two years of Tony Larusa, are we wrong on that? Like, how how have your thoughts maybe changed just on kind of that thought process after seeing Tony uh, in Chicago? I think I was wrong 100%. Yeah. I, because we had seen managers up then, like, you know, Robin could have cost the White Sox a couple games, but it wasn't a, okay, Robin did cost them a game. You could tell right here at this moment, the White Sox would have won and Robin Ventura messed it up. Same thing with Ricky Renteria and all different various uh, managers the White Sox have had with Ozzie and different managers around the, around the league where Joe Madden was, evidently losing games in the world series that they eventually won so this year i came into it knowing that tony messed up last year but the bats pretty much helped him out and the pitching was pretty solid but this year man actively messing the white Sox up not looking at scouting reports like not walking byron buxton in a game where you're up when liam Hendricks was second and third and the base open for first base and he's scared of Luis arise Instead of the actual threat of Byron Buxton, I know Luis Arise won a batting championship, but in that situation, I think most managers go with Luis Arise and say, I'm not going to let the better player beat me. He did that. Same thing with the one two count to Trey Turner. He's scared of Trey Turner, where you got a one two count already, and he wants to get the lefty lefty matchup, not knowing that Rex Muncy hits lefties pretty hard. And yes, he had a struggle struggle up to that point, but hell, Max Muncy, read, read the read the read the reverse splits, read the splits, read anything you want to. He was better versus lefties at that point than he was versus righties, or at least just the same. He wasn't like gonna get wiped out like a typical lefty would versus a left versus a lefty. So that was a a big time mistake there, and so many things like the Liam Hendricks last thing last year where he had been told about the rules from James Fegan. All these things mean that he wasn't prepared to manage that day. He was actively putting his players and his team in a negative spot by his knowledge or lack of thereof and his stubbornness not to do things by the book, do things correctly. If you get beat right there by Trey Turner, I don't think most people are going to be mad that Trey Turner knocks in Freddie Freeman from second base. 
yes, it's a tie game now, but no one's going to be really upset with the with the actual outcome and that you did a right process and the outcome came out bad. So many bad things from Tony, I believe, because he's a results-based guy where he thinks that, hey, if everything works out perfectly, my my process was correct. I And I usually like to bring this up, and people hate it when I bring it up. I think this is why the DUIs come along, because he thinks, hey, me making it home, even after being drunk, is a good result. And if I can do that, that means my process was good. And I think that's why he's got multiple DUIs, because he thinks the result is the thing, not the process that you got to go through to get the favorable results. So I think that's how he manages. And so him having and I think I heard you guys last week in your podcast say that he's got a unique situation where he's both the manager and pretty much the general manager. So he can't fire himself. He has a lot of power. A regular manager would know like, hey, if I make this dumbass move, my GM my baseball ops guy, they're going to come down at me and say, hey, don't make that move anymore. And they didn't have that dynamic with Rick Hahn or Kenny Williams. He was above both of them. Tony LaRusso was above both those guys. He had the ear of Jerry Reinsdorf. So I think that he made my belief of managers not managing that much in-game, like, go away. Now, I think I'd come right back if they actually hire a manager that is more analytically driven, more team building, more... Hey, I'm the CEO. You guys have ideas for me? Cool. I'll listen to them. And then finally, I'll make the decision out of all the information I have in my baseball gut, the analytics you've given me, all the, the situation that's going on, and then I'll make the correct decision. And if it falls flat on me, falls flat, I'll take the, the blame there. The result might not be favorable, but at least I did the process correctly. So what do, what do you think, like, what is the most surprising part about the spectacular failure? Because I know two years ago when they hired Tony, I kind of, you know, I thought, okay, maybe he's not going to get along with all of these players on, you know, on this fun team. But I didn't really think he would have many issues seven to 10 every night. You know, I've said that on other podcasts, but he clearly did. And like the, the not listening to his coaches and being emperor and that type of stuff, like, like he's always done that. So that part to me, like, isn't that surprising, but I mean, I, I did think like they, they, he kind of bent over backwards to fit in instead of being the old Tony. And I do think like, even though I didn't like this hire at all, I think they kind of needed that old guy, the guy that at least held players accountable. I think, you know, the, one of the most surprising things to me was just like the, the weekend at Bernie's like feel of this whole team and how it seemed like nobody was in charge. What do you think just about that premise and like where, where all of this went wrong the most? I couldn't agree with you more because I thought when he got hired, I was still on the managers don't matter that much. The other thing I was like is like he's going to mess the culture up here. The clubhouse has been established as Tim's clubhouse or Jose Abreu's clubhouse. We need to stay in that way. I thought he's going to come in and throw chairs and we do this the old school way type of thing. I mean, he started doing that with the uh, Yermi Mercedes thing. You know, I disagree with it vehemently, still do. But he was establishing this is what we do. This is old school. We don't swing a 3-0 up by a, a certain amount of runs, blah, blah, blah. I didn't like that. That's way too old school. But I thought he was going to be a disciplinarian. But you see time after time after time after time again. And him like willingly participating in the, the slippery slope the White Sox gave their players. They were like, okay, you're kind of hurt. Go 75%. And then you saw that happen all the time. Not when players are hurt. 
They're fully healthy. They've been on the field for a month. You see lack of effort. You see lack of effort, and then you see no accountability for the lack of effort. And then this is snowballing. And you heard later in the comments by Liam Hendricks, I think one of the last couple of games, he's like, we need authoritarian. We need somebody to drop the hammer down when these guys are getting out and they're thinking they're too cocky and too good to, to be out there. You need somebody to, to tell them right and say, this is what we're doing as a major league baseball team. This is what we have established. If you don't like it, I'll sit you down. Never was that from Tony. And I don't necessarily need punitive, but I need something. I need somebody to pay when they do something cor- incorrectly maybe not embarrass them and take them off the field immediately. But when they come back in the dugout for the half inning break, Hey man, seems like you don't want to play today. Cool. Awesome. There's a seat right next to me. You're not going in the clubhouse. You're watching that game right next to me. And you're going to be watching this game. Somebody else is coming in for you. You don't embarrass the player. You give them exactly what you told you thought that was not meeting the standard. And then you have the player sit down and watch the boring ass baseball game for whatever, how many innings left over. And I hope, that would get through to that player. You know, you can only do that a certain amount of time before that player doesn't either listen or needs to leave this team. So you have established that initially. It wasn't any of that with Tony La Russa. He got way too chummy. He got way too um, happy with that. The players loved him because there really wasn't a crossword said about Tony, especially in the public. These players all went to his press conference after when he had to say he had to step down. They all love them from all reports. You know, you get little snide comments. And the Liam Hendricks one tells me that he didn't like how Tony laid the hammer down or didn't at all. But no one was really disrespecting Tony like you would usually hear somebody who had a terrible year like Tony did somewhere. You would hear some whispers coming out from the sources. But they need somebody that's going to lay down the hammer. And I've seen the latest reports talking about hiring a manager that is more experienced. I do like second time, third time around managers because you see they make their mistakes initially and they can uh, replace them and fi- find out how they to do better in the second or third job. But also some of the names I've been seeing is like, hmm, no, no, sir. I don't want those guys. And like we're going way too far on the disciplinary and old school side where we're not even paying attention to the new school analytics, open minded side. The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at Babbel.com slash BlueWire. That's 60% off at Babbel.com slash BlueWire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash BlueWire. Rules and restrictions apply. 
Yeah, Herb, I think that was very well said, and a lot of Sox fans can relate to what you're saying. And we'll get to the report right now here, uh, Herb, because you're referencing what Bob Nightingale wrote on the morning of this podcast as we're recording it, which is on Sunday, Go Bears. What you're talking about is you know, an issue that I had with Tony LaRusso watching his managerial style, right? The in-game stuff just shows itself. But the behind the scenes, I think it is about policing players and what he did and why a part of the reason why players really liked playing for Tony LaRusso is because he treated them like professional baseball players, like major league baseball players. Tony LaRusso said, I don't need to tell you that you need to back up third base. You should already know that. And if you're not doing it, then that's on you and you got to fix it. And if you're not going to fix it, then that's your fault. It's like that hands-off approach is what it was in terms of policing his players. But the players love to play for him for a lot of reasons, as you were describing. But the process itself, Herb, is where I want to focus on, really, in the, uh, in the managerial hiring situation at this point. Here's the report from Bob Nightingale, and we'll get into it. Here's the quote. The Chicago White Sox want to hire a veteran manager to replace Tony La Russa, not wanting to take a chance on someone without experience. Some managers who fit the bill, Bruce Bochy, Mike Schilt, Ron Washington, John Gibbons, Bo Porter, Joe Girardi, Joe Madden, Bochy, Washington, and Schilt are considered the leading candidates. So you heard the names. I'd love your reaction to some of them. I know you said you didn't really like uh, what you were seeing early on. And then also just the process where we heard from Rick Hahn and what he wants in a manager. I would love for the White Sox just to throw a wide net around the whole entire Major League Baseball managerial search. Like, not just put, pigeonhole yourself into, we need this kind of guy. If you do, cool. If you have your mind set on a person, awesome. But there's no harm in what usual NFL teams do where they're data mining. They're sending out a wide net so they could speak to wide-ranging candidates and get information from them and maybe... This person has an idea or some something he says in his um, interview that you're like, you know what? I never thought of that. And also, you have blown me away in this interview. I was going to Bruce Bochy, Ron Washington, uh, Joe Girardi, Joe Madden style. But now you guy who is more analytically based, more a Latino speaking person or something else that is maybe out there that is a... Uh, 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 not in the major category that you listed in that Bob Nightingale article, you've turned my head around and maybe I'm thinking that you might be the right person for the job instead of my bullheaded thinking of, I got to get this manager that's managed before and he's kind of a disciplinarian. No, just send out as wide ranging of interview that you can. There's no rush to this. I don't know when you can hire. I think you know the World Series is probably sacred. You can't probably do it then. But in the interim, if the teams get eliminated, you want to speak to somebody from that team. If you want to speak to somebody from the Cardinals, you want to speak to somebody from the Toronto Blue Jays, you can do that right now. You can go out and send your uh, wide ranging net and say, hey, what do you think about this 2022 White Sox? And what would you change about it? And you get information from these guys, information from what Toronto does, information what Houston does. And maybe you could pick some of that things up. And if you want to still go with Bruce Bochy. At the end of the day, you can, but you have more information in your mind to know that what Major League Baseball thinks of you and how to improve your team without even hiring that guy. So if they feel like, hey, this is a slam dunk to get Bruce Bochy and he wants to be the manager or Ron Washington, cool. 
but also do all your due diligence and talk to everybody because you never know when somebody's going to knock your socks off. I mean, theoretically, Jerry Reinsdorf told Kenny Williams to speak to Ozzy Guillen as a favor to him. He knocked his socks off. He's the manager in 04. Yeah, I think it's just like th- this process. I tweeted this earlier. I think it's going to lend just to the fact that like this is like maybe the most dysfunctional organization in baseball, right? Because it's this three-headed monster of guys and we don't know who makes what decisions and they like it that way because then it's harder to blame like one singular entity. But I I kind of feel like with whoever they hire, like they're going to say it's a consensus, but again, like we're going to know which one of the three-headed monster like hired these guys, right? I mean, if if they hire Mike Schilt, I mean, Walt Jockety totally talk to Tony who talked to Jerry and like, that's what we're doing here. Right. Where I think like Han completely left up to his own devices, probably hires like a bench coach of some sort, like a Joe Espada type. So then the front office could have more influence on everyday decisions. And then maybe like Kenny Williams is the, the mediator here and we end up with Ron Washington. And I think we'd all be pretty happy with Ron Washington. I just, you know, some of the names that I'm seeing are, are a little bit frustrating to me. What do you, what do you think about some of the rumored names? I just don't like uh, retreads just to be retreads. Like Ron Washington would be a good hire. I like Ron Washington, and I think he has learned from his mistakes previous, and he's been with championship clubs, and I think he's with the uh, Atlanta Braves now. So, like, he understands how to do things different from where his Texas Rangers days were, and that would be good. That's what I want. I want him to learn from that situation. But is Ron Washington open to – the new age of baseball and the White Sox open to the new age of baseball. They're already like the, got the smallest research and development slash analytics department in major league baseball. That's unacceptable. I don't know if Ron Washington changed that you get somebody like uh, Espada who comes from that organization of Houston Astros, who they heavily rely on analytics and different type of baseball strategies. You can maybe he comes and say, I'm used to X, Y, Z. This is what I need for my staff. This is what I need for my research and development crew. So you got to get this to me. So our team and our organization can be a little bit better. And hopefully Rick Hahn, Kenny Williams, Jerry Reinsdorf are willing to do that for the right man. Because the White Sox, as currently constructed, you see the Cleveland Guardians. They're not they're not close to the Cleveland Guardians and how well they're run. The White Sox need to win on the margins. And so having the right manager who has the right research and development stats, when you can win on the margins with this poor defensive team that doesn't hit home runs, the pitch is all right. You need to win some of the, the little things, the little games right there that they lost this year instead of turning those back into losses in 2023. So I think a good manager can make this bad season where Tony was actively losing games into a great season to 2023, especially expand this offense or expand this um, research and development department into something better, greater. And that's why I don't like the names on the list of Bruce Bochy. Yes, he won and won in San Francisco, which is a place you think that, you know, progression and progress, uh, progressive thoughts are there. And he probably wasn't to push back on that. But I don't know what he brings to the table now. I don't know if he wants to be an old curmudgeon type of person. And some people tell me his health is worse. And I mean, you heard the Ozzie Guillen postgame quote, his health is worse than Tony's. So he's coming back to manage the French team in WBC. But can he hold for 162? That's what we had with the the former guy. I don't want that. I don't want anybody that is in like baseball for a long time 
and doesn't have the open mind to the new stuff that makes their team slightly better. So I was always like thinking like, I know the Washington Nationals not necessarily going to give up Davey Martinez, and I don't know how good of a manager he is, but that's the type of manager I'm looking for. You know how the Padres took Bob Melvin from Oakland. I want a guy who is currently managing that might be on the team that's just underachieving, but his managing mind, his brain is just so good that you need to just get him in that change of scenery and a better team, and you'll see the results of a good manager. Yeah, I think Jesse Rogers mentioned Davey Martinez. Yeah, that, w- that would be interesting to me if they were able to do that somehow. But there was like reports out of Washington that his coaching staff is returning. So yeah, something like that would definitely be fine with me. Like I would lean towards a more analytical, younger Spanish speaker for sure. It's just, yeah, th- this could go a lot of different directions. So, you know, something else that was in the Bob Nightingale piece, you know, referenced Jose Abreu. You know, the White Sox have, I guess, kind of a tough decision to make because it's Abreu, even though, you know, they have a lot of roster limitations. Where do you come out on this and and how tough of a decision is it really? I think it's a tough decision because multiple things. Rick Hahn drafted Andrew Vaughn. Rick Hahn traded for Aloy Jimenez and he drafted Gavin Sheets. Now, Jose Abreu was signed and Rick Hahn was part of that. Kenny Williams takes the credit for it, but whatever. Um, And looking at all four of those guys' numbers, you say that Aloy Jimenez is the most valuable of those four people, I believe, offensively. Like, because if his health is all right, he's going to hit 40 home runs or more in a season. But that's the catch. Is his health going to be all right? I do not feel like you can count on Aloy Jimenez to come back and give you 140 games minimum next year. And so for that, I think you got to find a way to turn Aloy Jimenez into something that is valuable in the outfield, a valuable uh, middle rotation uh, pitcher, something that is of his value. Because I don't think, while it's not at the precipice, not the top of his uh, value, he rebuilt it with this great second half that he had. And so you can get something for him. Jose, of course, is a free agent. And if I think that if they let him go, they'll be letting go not only a team leader, but the best hitter on the team this year, the full season. Even though he didn't hit for power this year, only 15 home runs, that was a little troubling to see. But his average was high. His on-base was the highest it's ever been. His slug wasn't you know where it needs to be, I think, in the mid-fours. But I think regular Jose Abreu, 30 and 100, is returning next year. The offseason, I'll give him a pass because usually – he posts real numbers. Now, this Andrew Vaughn thing, and like I saw the article and they said the only people they're not going to be including in trade talks are Dylan Cease, which I can understand, and Andrew Vaughn. I'm like, I see it, but I don't. Like, we're, we're, where's the Andrew Vaughn that you're seeing that can is untouchable? Because I don't see it. I know he played out of position in the outfield, and that's not because of Andrew Vaughn. That's because the organization is a poor organization. We've established that. But will he build up enough value at first base with just his bat and his glove to make it worthwhile sending away a four-win player in Jose Abreu? Because that's theoretically what they're going to do. They're going to choose Jose Abreu or Andrew Vaughn. And if that's the choice, for me, there's no choice at all. I'm bringing Jose Abreu back for a one-year deal with, a, with an option after that. Nothing too long. The option could be player option. It can be mutual. It could be a team option, whatever. But I got to have Jose Abreu in that lineup 
and not lose that production while trying to build up Andrew Vaughn's production. And if I've already thinking about trading Aloy, Andrew Vaughn's my DH in that interim. Like Aloy's gone somewhere else. Somebody else is filling his spot in left field. I would be very sad because I know that Aloy's going to be a, an all-star eventually if he ever plays 140 games because his bat just plays. It's, it's the thing that makes him work. But I need to have some certainty that somebody's going to be manning either DH or left field for the majority of the games, and you can't put that all on Aloy Jimenez. And Gavin Cheats in my world is a four, fifth infielder, like a backup left-hander. Give him a few starts. He's not an everyday first baseman. He's not an everyday right fielder like they played him this year. So I don't do anything with Gavin Sheets. If Baltimore wants him back for a hometown thing, send somebody back this way. I don't care. I mean, he's not to me. He's negligible in this whole conversation. He did show a nice bat, but his bat's not that great where you're like, oh, we got to get this guy in the in the lineup. The only thing that goes for him is that he's a power lefty bat, which the White Sox don't have many of those. Yeah, there's so much there, and that's where we're at as White Sox fans trying to figure this out. It's a puzzle that has pieces that don't fit. It's insane how they got to this point. You can even go further and, and look at the depth at the minor league level that's readily available, and you say, okay, well, who's going to fill a left-handed bat? None. You can't. It's Gavin Sheets and Grandal and Moncada. That's the source of the power. And so how do you add left-handed bats? Well, Oscar Colas is going to be a part of this conversation. And then what else? If you're keeping Aloy, Vaughn, Abreu, which is almost assuredly not going to happen, then we're essentially running it back and you don't have room for free agents. And you're going to look at the payroll and say, well, AJ Pollock's going to opt in and it's going to cost us this. And we have these restrictions and blah, 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 blah. It's just starting to get exhausting. So to think about Aloy Jimenez's trade value is tough because I think the White Sox value him very high and other teams are not going to pay for what is production left off the table because of his injury. And it's unfortunate because I agree with you, Herb. I think this is an elite hitter. James and I talk about this on the podcast a lot. Aloy Jimenez is probably through 162. Uh, this is all hypothetical, but just based on what we see in his approach and how well he does adjusting to pitchers mid at bat it, it tells us that he could be one of the top hitters in the American League so you know you have all these thoughts floating around and with Andrew Vaughn he's at just about a thousand plate appearances and I said I want to give Andrew Vaughn 1500 plate appearances before I say he's the best hitter in the White Sox lineup which I think he ultimately will turn into I have a lot of faith in Andrew Vaughn he's got to walk more and I'd like to see him hit more home runs and even slug it a little bit more in the gaps but I love his approach. I know the White Sox love his approach as well. And this kind of leads me to where I, I want to get your opinion on this. And this is where I'm going to take it. We talk about winning in the margins. And we just went over the positional redundancies and the issues that go along with too many bats and power and all this stuff. I'm looking at the minor league records, guys, this year within the White Sox farm system. Let's just go through it. I'll read them out loud. In AAA, the Charlotte Knights finished 58-92. and Double A, Birmingham, 61 and 77. Winston Salem, that's advanced single A, 58 and 74. Low A, Kannapolis, 58 and 74. The White Sox are not winning in the minor leagues. I don't know if they put a priority on winning. It sure doesn't look like it because there's talent, especially in, in high A, Winston Salem and double A, sprinkled in there. How much does winning at the minor league level matter to you, Herb? And how much does it teach a player to get ready? for Major League Baseball and all that comes with it. I'm not sure exactly how much winning in the minor leagues matter, 
But I believe just winning in general anytime feels much better and feels like it gets you ready for what you're expected to do in the major leagues. Like, I know it's more of a development thing, lower you get. And so there can be working on different things during that time in low A and high A. But you got to win every once in a while. That tells me that you have superior talent, too. And it's not like the White Sox, you know, are getting these guys just sent up to the major leagues all the time. And you guys know more than me, but I've heard so many times that Charlotte only had like two starting pitchers in the rotation. That's more of a, a symptom of the terrible organization. But you can't have that. I mean, how are you going to win games if you only have two of five starting rotation pitchers and one of them keeps on going up every you know month and Davis Martin, you keep on having him go up and then Tanner Banks, he's going up and down too. So I just think maybe winning does matter because I look at the top of that and I see the Tampa Bay Rays, even though they got eliminated yesterday, but you see the Tampa Bay Rays in the playoffs more often than not, if not every year. That's because they develop. They know, they know how to both develop their talent and have good draft picks. And so I think the problem with the White Sox in particular and why their minor league doesn't work is because they've had poor drafts. And I think I've liked the Mike Shirley drafts of late. Some of them, you know, before that with the Kenny Williams type of drafts and uh, was it Doug Lauman didn't like them too much. They were just going athlete. They were going a relief pitcher in the first round or in the, in the, uh, the middle rounds of first round. I was like, I love Zach Birdie, but first, second round, no, sir, for a reliever. And they're kind of doing that with Garrett Crochet. They project him as a starter, but he's not starting next year. He's going to be reliever. And maybe in 2024, he'll eventually be a starter. But too much of that going on with the White Sox where they're drafting poorly. And then they get these guys into the system. I don't think they develop them as well as other teams. We see clearly with Cleveland. They bring up a different guy every year. You're like, man, he, he can play. He has fundamentally everything you need. The Freeman kid on Cleveland, like he barely plays. When I see him, I'm like, that's a fantastic player. They're, they've made Rosario and Jimenez, who I thought were good as Mets prospects. Now they're one's an all-star. The other guy always gets hits versus the White Sox. Stephen Kwan over there. Do we have those players? No, we don't have those players in our system. When we ha- have a player, we get hyped about Gavin Sheets, who is a major league baseball player, but is not a player that you're going to be, you know, putting stock into. Now, Andrew Vaughn, awesome, but he only spent like a year at single A and jumped those levels. He was going to be a hitter no matter what. Nick Magical is a big time miss. That's a huge miss right there. Not signing Carlos Rodon, huge miss. Like I would be making every inroad I could to make sure that my minor league system is the best it can be for multiple reasons. So I can trade from that minor league system so I can bring up talent when I need it. We're talking earlier where we don't have a power lefty bat just available to come up or a guy that can hit a home run. Maybe he doesn't strike out a lot. Maybe he strikes out a lot, but he can just hit a home run once in a while to generate uh, some offense and a dead ass offense. Gavin Sheets was our guy, but he had to go down to get that. It's just so weird that this minor league system is not as good as it should be because they don't. I mean, how many people they traded? They haven't traded a lot of people away lately, like the Connor Piltonkins and the Alex Calls and the uh, 
steel walkers are the ones that stand out in my mind. But otherwise, those guys are not great shakes. They're not anything uh, to talk about. Zach Collins is on his third organization now. Another failed minor league prospect right there. So I just think the White Sox need to draft better and throughout the whole draft so they can have a better organization. I think that that's where it matters. Like you actually don't have good players. Then that's why you don't win. I think 2020 like had like a lot of ramifications on everybody, obviously. And like some of that was like, you know, they had five draft picks. They started drafting high schoolers and those guys really needed to be playing minor league games and they couldn't, you know, but one thing like the White Sox really liked their environment in Schaumburg, you know, where they did the alternate site thing. And that was the reason why they felt that Andrew Vaughn was capable of skipping all those levels. They did a similar thing this year with Project Birmingham. I'm not sure how much of it you guys covered on your show, but just like, what are your thoughts on what Chris Getz tried to attempt there and just like, you know, the plan at getting a, a concentrated look at their top prospects by White Sox people, like all in one location, essentially. Love it. It was awesome move. It's a very innovative move. That's what I've been wanting from the White Sox staff. They have the most loyal owner. So do some things outside the box. This is outside the box. Project Birmingham was a genius thing to have all the prospects into one central location, get all the eyes, all the coaching there. And Oscar Colas is like, hey, I'm too good for this. Uh, let me go up to AAA real quick, guys. Um, and, you know, for them, because they wanted it to him to see a little tougher pitching before the end of the year. But it was a genius thing. And you saw the Cubs are doing like a little mini camp up here at Wrigley with all their prospects. So I think this is a thing that organizations will take from the White Sox. I, the other day I sent out a tweet. It's like, what does Rick Hahn do well? And Besides the signing contracts before our beers are established and getting players on a cheap contract, put those in quotes, before they start making real good money. You know, Moncada is going to be making real good money this year, and people are not too happy about that one. But this, you should be doing things outside the box that no one else is doing to try to maximize the production that you're going to get from these minor league players. I'm sure seeing some of the top prospects across from them, it created some competition and seeing that all the coaches that people are going to be there to help you develop your talent was exciting. And it's great for Colson Montgomery to get that experience, to get up to double A and see that and uh, train. I liked what they did there. It's a very rare win for the White Sox, especially in their minor league department. I think they should do more of that. They should be trying to do. And I saw your article there. They're pretty much having a lot of their people down in the instructional leagues in uh, Glendale, Arizona. So more just give give me more White Sox. You have job security up the yin yang. So might as well do some things that are outside the box that traditional ball clubs do not do because we're not a traditional ball club. So do some things that are different. That is so true. The White Sox are not a traditional ball club. My God. So when it comes to Project Birmingham, I think it's a unique situation for the White Sox specifically, like we were talking about a little bit, because right now in development cycles for a lot of these prospects, they're sort of around the same range of where they can handle levels of competition at the minor league level and, and points in their seasons and even just skill. Their skill can handle it. And the White Sox felt comfortable enough to use the last month of the season in Birmingham to test these players. And Herb, this is the last one I have for you. Were there any players that stood out to you across this season that you were monitoring or you hope to project to be mainstay Chicago White Sox moving down the road? 
the only one I really put an eye on was the Oscar Colas guy. He is an otherworldly power. I don't know if he could be an everyday right fielder currently right now. I mean, I know he can, but I don't know if he, you know, if what the White Sox think of him is, is going to be in the major leagues. I know he can hit power. I've heard that he struggles with with the slider, but who doesn't? And I mean, we got a player in the major leagues right now, a couple of players in the major leagues who struggle with the slider still three, four years into their career. So if this guy can come up here and give competition next year in spring training, I hope they give him an opportunity to win that job. I know there's going to be a flux out there with A.J. Pollock for the most part coming back because it's going to be making $13 million. There's nowhere else in this market where he can make $13 million next year to play baseball. I guarantee you that. So he'll be playing one of those corner positions. And if you bring Aloy back and Andrew Vaughn and Jose Abreu back, one of those players is going to be playing left field. So where are you going to get the experience there? Where's uh, Oscar Colas going to get his experience in the major leagues or his chance to play in the major leagues? But if they think of him as the guy, and I think, James, you tweeted out or somebody tweeted out the other day that, they didn't go and get a right fielder this past offseason because of Oscar Colas coming up eventually. I mean, if you think he was that good to not go and get some right fielder to plug in for this year in your championship window, he better be goddamn good next year. He better be in the lineup next year. No games, no no uh, service manipulation, none of that stuff. If he's the best right fielder for the job, put him in the game because the numbers play. The pop plays. I don't know if that's going to be consistent in the major leagues, but that power is otherworldly. And he's older than these guys in double and triple A. Brief cup of coffee in Japan. He knows the game. He knows ball. So might as well challenge him with the highest level that you can have. And I know they don't like to send players back down, but sometimes if he's not ready, initially he wins a job and then he falls flat on his face in the first two months. Send him back down. There's no harm in that. You have plenty of outfielders available for the White Sox. Larry Garcia is still on the team. Yeah, you know, I think he's going to be on the team. I think one of the things that surprised me the most about Oscar Colas is that he's he's like a good defender. He's not one of these, you know, first base DH corner types. Like he can actually play the outfield. So I do think he'll be part of the team. But I don't want them relying on just Oscar Colas. And I've said this, like, you know, for years we've said they need more left-handed bats. And, you know, I think they do. I think it's one of the reasons why the Abreu thing is so difficult, right? They could go a lot of different ways this offseason. Last thing I have for you, what what do you want to see? I mean, I know, like, we talked about the manager, and, like, that's important. But, like, they have to change this roster a little bit. What do you want to see added to it that would, I guess, make you feel better about this thing being salvaged over the next couple seasons? I want to see plus gloves. I want to see people who can catch the ball in the air, not necessarily run down everything, everything but a guy that can catch – What's hit to him? Hitting the gaps. Throws, throw a occasional runner out in outfield. Our outfield defense needs to get much more improved than it is right now. I need to see a power lefty bat. And even though I just said we need to see a better um, glove guy, I wouldn't mind if they go and find like Jesse Winker in his last year before he hits free agency. I would more stick him as a designated hitter instead of a left fielder because he's horrid out there. But if he had to play left field, he couldn't be as worse as a uh, as a uh, Andrew Vaughn or Sheets for that matter. But I need to have more reliable lefty power. Like if you want to go and explore the Michael Conforto, 
thing again, do it. Maybe he is rehabbed from his shoulder injury he had uh, at a bachelor party or something like that. That would be great. I just need to have somebody else from the other side of the plate consistently playing good baseball and smashing the ball over the fence every once in a while. Because, yes, next year, no more shift. And so you should get a average boost from both Yasmani and Yohan Moncada. But you need to have power from both of those guys. And from time to time, those power bats are sapped. Like Yohan Moncada is 2021, which was a good year for him. Power wasn't where I expected him to be, and especially this year, it was zapped out. It was sapped out of him. And Yasmani Grandal for his second half in 2021 was phenomenal. I think he finished with 23 home runs on the year. That's the guy we need to see, not the guy who's popping up, not the guy who's taking uh, 2-0 pitches right down the plate or getting called third strikes on him. No, we need to see more power from Yasmani Grandal. Sell out for power, and this team, you can do that. You have the ability to do that. Where. You can just be a different player instead of being the patient on base, Yasmani Grandal. You can be the active, trying to jump on pitches, Yasmani Grandal, because people wouldn't see it. After a while, they would adjust to it, and then you can go back to your patient approach. But if you're jumping on two old pitches and smashing those things over the fence, then the White Sox are a better team because those two being very powerless and very bad at baseball this year really made the White Sox the 81 and 81 team that they eventually came to be because you can't have a lack of power from one side of the plate like the White Sox have had pretty much our whole lives. Isn't it poetic, man? 81 and 81, Johnny Cueto in his last sounding gets a quality start, and it's all just perfect. How do you feel about the rule changes coming, Herb? With pitch clock at 15 seconds without runners and 20 with a runner on, and you mentioned it. Um, there's the pickoff rule as well as the larger bases, but the banning of the shifts. How are your feelings about all of them? The pitch clock I was initially not for, but I watched a couple AAA games, and I was like, yes, indeed, this game goes by fast, and I don't think you're compromising the game. I think you're allowing the game just to go faster by not doing all the ancillary things that you do in the in Major League Baseball, the walking around, the adjusting the batting gloves, the the thinking, I think it will help pitchers out immensely because I you know, we're all fans of Mark Burley. What is the thing he did? He got the ball and threw it. He didn't have great stuff. He just knew where the ball was going. And part of his whole mystique was that he got the ball and threw it. So you didn't have time to think about, oh, he's gonna be throwing he's gonna be throwing that, this, that, or other. He was going to throw anything you wanted, and he was going to get the ball and throw it. It didn't matter. The catcher's putting down a two. He's throwing a curveball. And I think that will help some of these pitchers out. Lucas Giolito. Jesus Christ. Yes, speed him up. I think that is part of his problem, thinking too much. Get the ball, throw it. What the What's the catcher calling? A changeup? Cool, throw it. Now, if you need time to adjust in the pitch or make sure that you're not giving a tell away from Lucas Giolito, cool. Establish a, establish a way where you can get the ball and throw it, get the sign, and then get the the right grip quickly. But this will help White Sox pitchers, I think, immensely. The shift will help those two guys I already mentioned. If Gavin Sheets is still on the team, he seemed like more than anybody adjusted to where they're shifting them over to, like, we had the third base at shortstop. He would hit the ball where the third base would be sitting or be standing usually. So I think he'll go back to more of a power bat and hitting the ball to right field and hopefully over the fence if he is still with the White Sox. Uh, let's see, bigger bases, nothing can go wrong there. It's a, it's good. Better bases, bigger bases means 
you know, people are getting to the first quicker. They're getting to second quicker because that much uh, space uh, cuts down uh, incremental time. And that's good for everybody involved. I like more offense. I like more safety there, too. You can get away from the first baseman who's uh, putting his foot on the base a little further away from him and go into the back of the bag there. Um, and the third thing, the fourth thing was what again, Mike? There's a pickoff limit now. I mean, this is just kind of interesting. You're afforded three pickoffs. If you use a third pickoff and the runner is not out, that runner automatically gets the next base. So I think that just kind of adds a little wrinkle into managing base runners. Yeah, I think that probably works out best for everybody involved. You don't have the constant throw over to first base. You get some punitive uh, measures. If you throw over for that third time, you don't get them out. And mm-hmm. I think this will increase base running too. People run more because they're not getting checked as much. They're not getting thrown over as much, knowing that those throws are at a premium. They can't just be wasting those throws with those garbage, you know, little, I see you. Uh, I don't like the pitch. I'm going to throw it the first mm-hmm. type of thing you see all the time. Yeah, this is going to be only improving the game. I mean, I didn't necessarily like the second, the runner on second thing initially when it was announced in the extra innings when Rob Manford did that a couple of years ago. But I've come around in the regular season. That has been really nice. It was enjoyable. Yesterday, seeing the Cleveland Guardians having to play the whole game throughout versus the Rays with no extra runner at second was a joy. That's how playoff baseball should be. I think these rules, while people will be initially hesitant because they're old school, they're resistant to change. I think it's needed for baseball. These four in particular are needed for baseball. Now, can we get the robot up thing? I don't know when that's coming, where you're right, where you're you know, like, that's a strike and you get the challenge to call that. Like, I saw that in uh, minor leagues. I was like, that is a thing. I want that because there's so many times in last night's game. I was watching the Cleveland, no, the New York San Diego game and Blake Snell's out here dealing ball, middle, middle pretty much. And the ump calls it a ball. I was like, oh, come on now. <laughs> it's not that hard. I know your job's hard. And on the corners, I get it. But the ball's in the zone. We can't be we can't be messing up play- balls like that in the playoff game. This is important. You got six umps here. One of you guys get it right. I agree wholeheartedly with the automated strike zone. When they had cameras to fix plays, like if a ball landed fair, if they're doing replay review, to me, Major League Baseball was saying, we have to get everything right. Okay, well then make sure that every strike is a strike and every ball is a ball. You have the technology. Let's get robot umps in there. But I understand they wanted to maintain the human element and the umpires union is very strong and umpires want to work and all that other crap. But I'm with you. Get it right. Herb, this has been awesome. Thanks so much for joining the Future Sox podcast once again. Thank you guys for having me. Awesome questions. are always an enjoyable time with you guys. That's Herb Lawrence of CHGO. Be sure to subscribe to the CHGO White Sox podcast. He does great work with Sean Anderson and Vinny Duber. Love talking White Sox baseball with you. We do it every week on the Future Sox podcast, thanks to the Blue Wire Network. Be sure to subscribe uh, to our podcast. Give us a like and all that. James, that was a lot of fun, man. We got we got Herb talking about managers mattering. That was, uh, that was a win for us, I think. Yeah, it was wonderful. That was, uh, yeah, I knew I, I wanted to ask him that just because like me and him have always been similar. And then we saw like, you know, what happens when you have the bottom? I think we've seen the bottom. We're looking forward to hopefully the White Sox making moves that'll salvage some whatever this window is, some some of this competitiveness that uh, the White Sox clearly have within the talent in the room. They just got to fix some things around the margin fundamentally and maybe fill some roles in the outfield. I'm looking forward to Oscar Colas. Uh, Herb is as well. James, I know we've been talking about it all the time on the Future Sox podcast. 
Colas is going to be fun. But big news, Bob Nightingale released that Jose Abreu most likely will not return in the article. And then he gave us some managerial candidates. So lots to cover. Don't go anywhere. You got the Future Sox podcast. Stay tuned weekly. Thanks to the Blue Wire Network and SoxMachine.com. We'll talk to you all next Tuesday. For Herb Lawrence and James Fox, my name is Mike Rankin. Thanks so much for listening.